Well, would you turn uh, in your Bibles, please, uh, to Luke chapter 18? We're just continuing our studies in the Gospel of Luke, and we come to a very well-known passage, Luke 18 and verse 35. Luke 18 and verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Amen. And again, we know God always blesses the reading of his own word. I'm sure you've noticed that uh, when I come to church, I have a very big Bible. Uh, it's uh, quite large. It's black. And I must confess, I'm very self-conscious about it because my father used to say, he wasn't a Christian, he used to say, uh, the bigger the Bible, the bigger the hypocrite. The bigger the Bible, the bigger the hypocrite. Now, uh, that, that, that has made me self-conscious, but to be honest, the reason I have such a big Bible is because I'm half blind, and I can't see uh, the, the type. I need bold, large type in order to read. In my 40s, my eyesight began to fail, and that was um, exasperated by a botched uh, cataract operation, and uh, I, I just have difficulty reading, particularly small print. Uh, it's not unknown for me when I'm reading older commentaries, which tend to be uh, very small in print, to have to use a, a magnifying glass uh, to read them uh, in my study. I find it very frustrating, especially if I'm out visiting, perhaps in the summer, wearing sunglasses. I forget to change the sunglasses to the proper glasses. Um, when I go in and open the Bible, I discover that I can't see it, I can't read it. And uh, I must confess to you this morning, I just bluff and uh, I read a passage that I know well and can read from memory. It's a, it's a real handicap. But what must it be like to be blind? I can still read print, I can still see colors, I can see scenery, people's faces, uh, sunsets. I'm not tripping over unseen obstacles, and I can still drive my car. But to be blind, to be visually cut off from the physical world must be a, a terrible thing. And it's not hard for us to imagine what it's like to be blind, because all we have to do is close our eyes, and immediately we're plunged into darkness. Imagine when this service is over, uh, you close your eyes, and you get up and you uh, navigate your way uh, to the kitchen to make a cup of tea. You have to negotiate the obstacles without falling over them. You have to open the door. You have to fill the kettle. You have to put the kettle on. Uh, and then you have to get the water into the mug uh, uh, or into the teapot. And then you have to uh, drink it without spilling it. You have to know where your, your mouth is. And then uh, imagine getting up this morning and, and you, you shower and you wash and uh, if you're a man, you, you shave, but you don't know if the shaving foam has been 
away. You don't know if there is a way. You don't know if the toothpaste is still in your face. You don't know if your hair is still combed. You don't even know if your clothes are coordinated. Maybe for most men that doesn't matter too much, but you, you, you don't know. What about going to work? You maybe wouldn't be able to go to work. You mightn't be able to hold down a job. Your world would be very difficult and very limiting compared to what it is now. In the passage, we're introduced to a man who is in that condition. Mark, in his account, tells us his name. He is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, we're told, is blind. Whether he was blind from birth or blinded uh, at a later point in his life, we can't be sure. You notice some versions say about uh, recover your sight, recovering your sight, and others say, say, receive your sight. So we the truth is, we, we just can't be sure. But as often uh, in uh, ancient times, as so often as the case in ancient times, uh, this man's disability had reduced him to poverty. And we find him sitting at the side of the road begging. He was unable to hold down a job. He was dependent on the charity of others. But as the story unfolds, we are told that he meets Jesus, and Jesus restores his sight completely. He gives him twenty-twenty vision. As I've said before, all these miracles in the New Testament are more than uh, historical records of the healing activity of our Lord during His earthly ministry. They are spiritual illustrations. They show us how God works in human hearts. And we know that because John in his gospel deliberately selects seven miracles. He only selects seven, and he uses them to illustrate spiritual truth. So after the feeding of the 5,000, where they eat and remember are satisfied, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. A spiritual lesson from a practical miracle. And after the healing of the man born blind, he says, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and significantly, he also says, and those who see will become blind. So all these miracles are to be understood in this way as pictures of how God works in human hearts. Spurgeon used to say, as a parable is a sermon to the ear, so the miracle is a sermon to the eye. So this man, Bartimaeus, is a representative of each of us because the Bible tells us that the non-Christian is spiritually blind. The God of this world, says Paul, has blinded the minds of those who believe not. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. So for this, for the non-Christian, there are certain things that the non-Christian cannot see. He can't see his sin. He can't see the seriousness of his sin. He can't see uh, the offensiveness of that sin to a holy and righteous God. He can't see the anger of God, the judgment of God, the terrors of God, that, that God's not careless and indifferent to human sin, but His justice demands that that sin is accounted for and punished, and that He cannot enter um, heaven without that sin forgiven. Like those children who had a snowball fight on the deck of the Titanic with chippings that fell off the iceberg that had been struck, they don't perceive, they don't understand the danger that they're in. Thirdly, they can't see the Lord Jesus. They can't see Him in all His beauty and, 
uh, wonder and they can't see the hope that's held out in the gospel through him. They don't understand that through a simple trust in him, in a moment all their sin can be forgiven and that through the death of Christ the wrath of God is placated and that they can through that trust in him enter into heaven knowing that their sin has been paid for. The non-Christian is blind to those things. He's blind to eternal truths, to eternal realities. He, He can't consider them. And even if he does think about them from time to time, the urgency of doing something about his condition uh, he's blind to that. It's like the, the man falling off a skyscraper, uh, an uh, 80 uh, story skyscraper, falling to the ground. And when he passes the 20th floor, he says, So far, so good. They don't see the danger ahead. And so this man, Bartimaeus, is a representative of everyone that's listening this morning who is not yet a Christian. It, in reality, our condition is much worse because. Uh, spiritual blindness has spiritual consequences. It was Helen Keller, you remember, the American girl who was born deaf and blind, who said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Now, this morning, I want you to notice four things about Bartimaeus. Uh, Notice that he was in the right place. Notice that he offered the right prayer. Notice he trusted in the right person. And notice, finally, he joined the right people. So first of all, then, uh, he was in the right place. Look at verses 35 through to 37. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, Jericho was located 70 miles northeast of Jerusalem and was on the the main road from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem. So all pilgrims who, remember at this time, were making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover would pass through Jericho. And it was on this busy thoroughfare that Jesus and his uh, uh, disciples had their journey interrupted by this man calling for help. Now, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem not simply to uh, celebrate the Passover, but you remember from our previous study, to lay down his life. He had told his disciples that he was going to die, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and that he would die and rise again. He was on a mission. And yet, on that mission, having set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem, this uh, poor man in his need cries out to Jesus. Jesus stops and heals him. The Lord was never too busy to respond to those who cried out to him in need. Notice verse 35 tells us, as he drew near to Jericho. But when you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus was leaving Jericho. When I was at a college 35 years ago, um, liberal scholars latched on to this and said, you see a, a contradiction between the gospel records. As he drew near to Jericho, look, Matthew, as he was leaving Jericho uh, in Matthew's gospel. However, and again, I love this because liberal scholarship uh, is contradicted by uh, archaeology, um, because they have investigated 
and dug, and they've discovered there were actually two Jerichos. There was the old city of Jericho, and there was the um, new city built by Herod the Great. And they further discovered that beggars would place themselves on the road between these two cities because not only were there people traveling to Jerusalem passing along this road, but the traffic, the local traffic between the two cities, they could benefit from as well. And archaeology confirmed the testimony and the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible and left, has left the liberals with uh, licking the egg off their faces once again. Jesus was approaching Jericho and he was leaving Jericho all at the same time. So Bartimaeus placed himself at the busiest point where he was most likely to receive the most help as he begged. So he took his decision to place himself purely on economic considerations. Where would the greatest number of people be? Where would the greatest number of people be passing at any uh, uh, time? Well, on the road between the old and the new city. Uh, you would get people passing through on their way to Jerusalem, but you would also get people passing between the two places. So he selected that place uh, for the day. There's no indication that he knew that Jesus would be passing by. In fact, the text suggests the opposite, that he was surprised when he heard the news that this individual that he had heard so many wonderful reports about was passing by him on that day. Now, was it just a case of being in the right place at the right time, a bit of good fortune, a bit of good luck? No. God and his providence had ordered and planned it that way. The shortest route between Galilee and Jerusalem was through Samaria. Now, it is true that most Jews didn't uh, travel through Samaria. They took the longer uh, route to avoid Samaria and to avoid the Samaritans, but not Jesus. You remember in John chapter 4, Matthew Pawson was preaching a, a, a sermon um, this week on that, and we talked a little bit about it. And uh, uh, in John 4, the woman of Samaria, where that narrative begins, he had to go through Samaria. Well, that wasn't a geographical need. That was a theological need because he could have done what most people do and uh, gone by the way of Jericho, taken the longer route. But he had uh, a purpose to fulfill. He had an encounter to have. He had a salvation to, uh, to, to um, dispense. And so he, he went through Samaria. So Jesus wasn't averse to traveling through Samaria, but this time he takes the longer route and he goes through Jericho for exactly the same reason, because there was a person there that he had to meet, a person he had to encounter, a person he had to heal. That all of this was superintended by God's overarching providence and purpose. Now, why are you listening this morning? Is it just because you're, you're at home and your parents are watching and, and you have been sort of obliged to watch too or that you were simply run, uh, randomly working through Facebook and you came across this particular um, uh, broadcast, this particular live link? Or, or could it be that God has ordered things in such a way so that just at this moment, at this time, you're listening to this broadcast so that God might speak into you your life and perform a miracle, a miracle 
of grace. He was in the right place. Secondly, he offered the right prayer. Look at verses 38 and 39. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. When Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is passing by, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice some things about that cry. Notice it was a short prayer. It wasn't elaborate and flurry. It was short, direct, and to the point. In contrast to the long, flurry, elaborate prayers of the scribes and Pharisees, this prayer seemed ordinary and pedestrian. But it was a cry from the heart, and it's cries from the heart that God hears. It was a sincere calling on Jesus out of a great sense of need, and it was a prayer that Jesus, a cry that Jesus responded to. Notice, secondly, there was an urgency about it. We're told that he uh, cried out, called out, says the NIV. They cried out, I think it's a better translation, because it's the normal word for cry with a prefix. It's an intensification of the normal word for call. Uh, There's an intensity about it. In verse 39, he uses another word, a, a different word, which means literally, he screamed, son of David, have mercy on me. He is passionate. He is persistent. He is uh, persuasive. He's not easily put off. He's not knocked back. Now, of course, the reason for that passion and that urgency is very simple. We're told in verse 37, Jesus was passing by, passing by. He wasn't standing still. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He wasn't stopping off at Jericho for a few days' ministry before going on to Jerusalem. He was passing through Jericho. This would be his first and his last opportunity to call to Jesus for help. And he wasn't going to let a bunch of wet blankets deter him or deflect him from experiencing the mercy of Jesus. In fact, the force of the original is that the people kept trying to silence him. But the more they rebuked him, the more they tried to quieten him, the more determined he became. He shouted the louder, Jesus, um, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, that's so crucially important. The gospel is not for wimps. The gospel is not for wusses. In Matthew 11 and verse 12, Jesus says, since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom uh, of uh, heaven has been forcefully advancing, and violent men uh, lay hold of it. You need a bit of grit, a bit of violence, a bit of determination, a bit of spunk, a bit of urgency, if you're ever going to be saved. The lackadaisical, the indifferent, the half-hearted, They will never enter the kingdom. You need to be persuaded and determined to do business with God. Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, and his prayer was a cry, and his cry was a prayer. He wasn't going to let anything stand in his way when it came to meeting Jesus. Hell or high water wouldn't prevent him from approaching Jesus for help. And that wonderful promise in Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me 
with all of your heart. There needs to be this determination, this determined search after Jesus if you're ever going to find Jesus. His prayer was a short prayer. His prayer was a passionate prayer. His prayer, thirdly, was a humble prayer. Notice he asks for mercy. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He wants to receive his sight. I think this is very significant, but he asks for mercy. Bartimaeus realizes that he deserves nothing from Jesus. He realizes that his sight being restored is actually a mercy from, from God. Now, we live in a world where people, and indeed in today's church, people believe that health, wealth, and prosperity is a human right. We live in a world that blames God for everything. You hear it all the time. Why would God ever allow this? Or why would God ever allow that? How can a good God allow anyone to suffer? How could, how could a good God allow this man to be blind? I, now, I want to be honest with you this morning. I do struggle with this at times. And one of the great struggles that I have is disability. Where we go on holidays is, is a, a very flat place, and there's, there's um, a long, uh, you know, three-mile boardwalk. And so a lot of families with disabilities, French and Spanish families, uh, come to this because of the wheelchair access that they have. Um, and when you see individuals severely disabled, mentally and physically, I must confess, I, I, I struggle with that. And there's one occasion I just felt overwhelmed by the disability that I, I witnessed. I, I do have difficulty, but not so much with natural disasters, because natural disasters are a result of creation groaning for its liberation. Perhaps if I was to witness what uh, the Cornerstone Church in uh, the Philippines that Eilish was connected with, I, I would struggle more with that. But, but, but I find it hard to understand why God would allow disability. Why, why would that happen? And I suppose the fundamental flaw in my thinking is that everybody has a right to good health. It's a God-given right to be well. But that's not the way that Bartimaeus saw it. He isn't insisting on his rights, make me well, because, because it's, it's my human right to be well. He's asking for mercy. If Bartimaeus was restored um, to, to seeing, he recognized that it would be a mercy from God, that he deserved nothing from Jesus. R.C. Sproul tells the story of while he was a professor at a, 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 um, a seminary, he said an essay and he told them that there was a, a target date for that work to be handed in. And uh, there was a, a young man, and he was late. And he said, oh, please, Dr. Sproul, just would you accept it? And he says, okay. The next week, he was three days late. The next week, he was five days late. The next week, he was a week late. And R.C. Sproul eventually handed him back his essay with an F. He had failed. To which the student said, but that's not fair. That's not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? He says, you got mercy and grace before, 
Justice demands that on no occasion you should have uh, passed at all. See, we, we confuse the mercy of God and the grace of God with our human rights. People say, how can God allow evil in the world? Why does God allow bad things to happen? But there's a more fundamental question than that. Why does he lie you? You're evil. And I'm evil. That's what Jesus said. Though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. Why does a God who is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous allow us? If he is the great God of justice, why does he permit us to live? Why does he not take us straight to hell? Because he is merciful. And we need to understand that, that we deserve nothing from him, and all that we receive from him is because of his mercy. If we got his justice, we would be locked up in hell forever. And all that we do receive is because of his justice. And Bartimaeus recognized that if Jesus was going to make him well, it was only by his mercy. He humbled himself to ask for mercy. And salvation is a merciful, a gracious act of God. As B.B. Warfield says, a pure gratuity from God. On occasion, a deserter was brought before Napoleon, and he was sentenced to death. Uh, by a firing squad, and his mother came in and, and pleaded for him that, that Napoleon would spare her only son. And Napoleon says, justice demands that he dies. To which the mother replied, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. And we need to humble ourselves before God and realize that we deserve nothing from God, and that if any of us are to be saved, it's only through his mercy and grace. Bartimaeus recognized that he had nothing to offer God, nothing to give to God, that he deserved nothing from God. He cast himself upon the mercy of God. I think that's very significant. Here is a man born blind. He doesn't simply ask for healing. He asks for mercy. Mercy. He deserved nothing from God. So Bartimaeus prayed the right prayer. It was short and sincere. It was passionate and urgent. It was humble and accepting. So he was in the right place. He offered the right prayer. Thirdly, he trusted the right person. Look at verses 40 uh, to 42. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Jesus always answers prayer. And when he heard the cry of Bartimaeus, he stops and orders that Bartimaeus would be brought to him. And he asks a very simple question. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus replies, Lord, let me recover my sight. He knew what he wanted. He knew what he needed. And he knew that Jesus could answer that prayer and meet that need. Lord, let me recover my sight. He believed that Jesus could heal him. He wouldn't have called out if he didn't believe that Jesus could heal him. He was a man who believed implicitly 
that Jesus could answer his prayer and restore his sight. And Jesus acknowledges that because he says in verse 42, recover your sight. Your faith, your faith has made you well. It was the, his faith that brought about the healing. Now, it wasn't faith per se. It, it wasn't faith in itself. Sometimes people give that impression that if you have enough faith uh, in anything, that, that that's sufficient. But it was a, a directed faith. It was a particular faith. It was a faith in Jesus that brought about the healing. And you see that in Bartimaeus' cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That title, son of David, is a messianic title. He believed Jesus to be David's greater son, the one promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was this uh, ever-developing anticipation of uh, a Messiah coming, a Messiah in the Old Testament, the Greek Christ in the New Testament, meaning anointed one. And in the Old Testament, prophets were anointed at the beginning of their ministry, priests were anointed at the beginning of their service, and kings were anointed at the beginning of their reign. And there was this growing expectation that a person would come who would combine all those three offices together, and he would be the great prophet, priest, and king, that he would be God's prophet to bring God's word to us, that he would um, be God's priest who would intercede between us and God, and that he would be God's king to rule over us and to defend us. And here Bartimaeus acknowledges that the humble carpenter's son from Nazareth is actually David's greater son, that he is the promised Messiah. You remember when Peter acknowledged that at Caesarea Philippi? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A a real turning point in, in the gospel narrative. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Um, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's so significant was that confession on Peter's lips that Jesus knew it was only a divine revelation, a divine intervention from the Father that uh, brought him to the point that he would acknowledge that truth because it was so contrary to Jewish expectations of what the Messiah would be, this military hero who would throw off the yoke of Roman bondage and establish the glory of Israel. And, and here Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and, and, and Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't receive this, uh, reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And here Bartimaeus, who has never even met Jesus, only heard about Jesus, acknowledges that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David. In fact, scholars suggest more than that. In the Old Testament, it was only God who dispensed mercy. That God was the dispenser of mercy. So, in asking Jesus for for mercy, he is actually acknowledging not only the messiahship of Jesus, but the divinity of Jesus. That Jesus is God and can dispense mercy to the human heart. What faith this man displayed. What faith this man had. And, And it was that faith that brought about his healing. Well, it was Jesus who brought about the whole healing, but it was faith that led a hold of Jesus uh, in order to bring the healing to him. 
Now it's by faith we receive the blessing of God. We can pray all we want. We can cry all we want. But unless that prayer is accompanied by faith, it'll accomplish nothing. It's prayer offered in faith that God answers. We must trust in Jesus. That He is the object. That He is the focus uh, focus of our faith. For God so loved the world that He gave His own one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him, in Him, not in in God in general, but believes in Him, in Jesus, the the one who has secured salvation for us. We must put our faith and trust in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says to the Philippian jailer, and you shall be saved. He is the object of our faith. And the question then comes to us, do you believe? Not do you believe vaguely and generally, but do you believe in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you resting in Jesus? He is the only legitimate object of faith. And it's through uh, faith in Him that our prayers are answered, and indeed this prayer of salvation comes. So he was in the right place. He offered the right prayer. He trusted in the right person. And thirdly, or fourthly, sorry, he joined the right people. You see that in in verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight. Notice that, immediately. This wasn't um, a progressive miracle. It was immediate. And followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, give praise to God. He followed after uh, Jesus. He received his sight. He followed after Jesus. Remember where Jesus was going? In our study, previous study, he was going to Jerusalem to offer his life up as an atonement for sin, to lay down his life. He was going to crucifixion. He was going to humiliation. He was going to a crown of thorns. He was going to death. And Bartimaeus follows him. He follows him. He became a follower of Jesus, and he glorified God. There was a radical change in his life. His discipleship didn't end with him receiving his sight. It only began. He attached himself to Jesus. He glorified God for Jesus and all that happened through Jesus. Now, Bartimaeus, uh, as I've said earlier, is only named in Mark's gospel. Now, Mark was the very first gospel that was penned, and it was penned by Mark really through the Apostle Peter. It was really Peter's gospel, but Mark seems to have put it together. Um, But it was written really for the believers in Jerusalem. And scholars speculate that the reason why he is only named in Mark is because he was well known uh, to Mark's readers, the believers in Jerusalem. He became an active member of the church there in Jerusalem. And that fleeting introduction to Jesus for Bartimaeus left him with a lifelong commitment to Jesus. He became a disciple. Now, Jesus is not looking for decisions. He's, He's looking for disciples. He's looking for people to commit themselves to him and to his church, because that is his way and that is his plan. He wants us to follow him, follow him to the very place of crucifixion, if necessary, to the place where we lay down our lives. You don't, you don't hear much about 
discipleship today. You don't hear much about following Jesus, laying down your life for Jesus, taking up your cross and following Jesus today. You don't hear about surrender, and you don't hear about, uh, about um, uh, yielding all and offering yourself up as a living sacrifice. But that's what Jesus wants, and that's what Jesus deserves. Here's a man who perhaps was blind from birth, but he couldn't see a thing. And and this man, Jesus, who we know to be the Son of the living God, he opened his eyes. Could this man have done anything less? It was a small thing for him to give up his life of begging and to follow after Jesus. He loved this man who had delivered him, who had freed him, and had restored his sight to him. And that's what what God is looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for uh, cross-committed Christians. Christians who are, are committed to the cross, that they believe that the cross is the means of salvation to those who are perishing. That they are willing to surrender their very lives for the one that they love, who has done so much for them, who has forgiven their sin, and has promised them a home in heaven. That's the kind of commitment that Jesus wants. People who will glorify God with their lives and will follow Him, follow Him to the very place of crucifixion. So here's Bartimaeus. This brief encounter with Jesus had lifelong, brought lifelong changes to him. He became a follower of Jesus, a member of the church uh, at Jerusalem, um, a, a witness and uh, a bold witness for Jesus. We are told at the end there that all the people, when they saw it, give praise to God. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing that if our encounter with Jesus, our salvation through Jesus, our deliverance by Jesus, led other people to glorify Him, praise Him, to worship Him for all that He has done for us. He was in the right place. He offered the right prayer. He trusted in the right person, and he joined the right people. Amen.